And now we want to share something special with our listeners, introducing Lit and Lit Extra, the new hot sauce IEX just created. We're calling it the official unofficial hot sauce of the stock market. It's a perfect blend of spice and high performance flavor. You'll definitely want to get your hands on some. You can check it out at iextrading.com slash podcast to get your fix while supplies last or tag us at IEX and let us know how you like it. Welcome, everyone, to the latest episode of Boxes and Lines. Boxes and Lines. I told you he does this every time. We're, we're really, really excited with our guest today. We, we think we've got the best guest we've had before. I say that every time, Halima. But we have Halima Krop, mm, Managing but Director. But this time he means it. <laughs> I do actually mean it. From my old alma mater, RBC Capital Markets. And Halima is the global head of commodity strategy there. And I think that the, definitely the coolest and best thing she has is of any previous guest. I've never had any of them had such a good previous job. Halima used to work in the CIA. If you think what she's doing now is cool. And I tried to uh, Google creep Halima before this, and I found sort of a video on what working in the CIA can teach you about leadership on Wall Street. And she talked all about like killing people with her pinky and stuff. No, she didn't. It was about Mm -hmm. bringing talent together and teamwork. But welcome, Halima. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Yes, and it is a very impressive resume, too. I like going through it. I mean, we've got Council of Foreign Relations and Davos and all of that. You know, Ronan is very impressed by his, the fact that he went to Davos uh, once. Um, twice, John. Oh, uh, well, okay, twice, yeah. But one I actually time I didn't, have, were... I didn't have the World Economic Forum badge. Yeah. <laughs> so I was just one of those guys going around holding meetings in the hotel. But I can say I was in yeah. Davos. <laughs> yeah, I think you practically tackled Angela Merkel at one point. They had to be wrestled to the ground by. That is uh, true. It was by mistake. Of, uh, I yeah, almost yeah. walked into her. Two gigantic <laughs> German security guards removed me from the corridor. That's a true story. <laughs> and, and I was not drinking. Anyway, I wanted to introduce Salima, and maybe if you could give us a quick intro to commodities. Um, obviously, you don't have to explain everything about it, but we have a lot of listeners from like equities. And all over, like, frankly, some people listen to John and I rail on, so I, I don't know why they do, but I think they're going to really like some of these topics today from like OPEC to energy transition, Biden administration. So take it away, Halima. Commodities. Uh, well, actually, I'll tell you actually what I do in the commodity space. I Please. run our commodity research effort at RBC Capital Markets, but my particular specialty that I actually write on and speak on TV about is the geopolitics of commodities. And as you mentioned, I started my career at the CIA after 9-11. We were very interested in worldwide threats to oil disruption. I started initially covering countries like Nigeria, which were seen as important for US energy security because we didn't really have the resource endowment. We didn't know we had the resource endowment in the United States. So we were very focused on security of supply. And then I transitioned to going to the Council on Foreign Relations and then starting Lehman Brothers. But really what I look at is, you know, what is the geopolitics of oil markets? You know, what price does OPEC want for oil prices? What are the Saudis looking to do? What is the threat of a supply disruption out of the Middle East? You know, when will sanctions come off of Iran and we'll get those barrels back onto the market? So looking at all the sort of political questions around oil is really my specialty. Nice. Well, that leads very well into our first question. And we, we trade stocks, so now I feel bore, boring <laughs> compared to you. But um, uh, first question is, one year after the price war, just had an OPEC meeting at the start of March. Uh, what's the outlook for, outlook for OPEC now? Well, you know, it's a great question because, you know, one year ago, I was actually in Vienna when the Russians and Saudis couldn't reach an agreement to stabilize the oil market. And then I actually 
went to Saudi Arabia the next day after that meeting fell apart because Saudi was the host of the G20 that year and there were energy security meetings going on. And it was really clear you know, that the Saudis were absolutely determined to get the Russians back to the negotiating table. The Saudis had wanted to put a floor under prices as soon as we got the reports out of Wuhan about the virus. They very much saw the health crisis as having the potential impact on demand as the financial crisis in 08, 09. And they wanted really assertive OPEC action to get ahead of the crisis, to remove significant quantities of barrels in the face of what they thought was going to be a massive demand shock. And the Russians, on the other hand, were like, you know what? We're not (laughs) sure this is going to spread outside of China. We already did a cut in December. We're not sure we want to give any more lifelines to shale. And so we really had a, a shocking situation of a price war where all of these big producers essentially put all the barrels they could on the market right when we were having the worst contraction and demand in history. And then stories mm. filled up, rest is history. You know, Donald Trump got the Russians and Saudis back together. We got the biggest cut in OPEC history, 9.7 million barrels a day of production from OPEC plus Russia taken off the market. And that was really important in helping to turn this market around. I mean, we had China, you know, the place where the pandemic began was the first to come out of the pandemic. They were the ones that really have the first signs of an economic recovery. They really led the recovery in terms of oil demand. But on the other side of it, you've had these producers essentially saying, we're going to pull our barrels off the market. And at this last OPEC meeting, there were real question marks going into it about would OPEC decide now is the time with the vaccines being rolled out with government stimulus programs to essentially start putting those barrels back on the market. So there was really a question would we potentially see millions of OPEC barrels making their way back onto the market? As a lot of market participants are saying, are we in a new super cycle for commodities? But the Saudis, I think were really looking at surprising the market, showing that they didn't want any short sellers left for oil. And they essentially said, you know what? That production cut that we did, our unilateral extra cut that we did in January of a million extra barrels, we're just gonna keep that off the market for now. And we're going to leave you guessing when we're going to bring those barrels back. We essentially are going to be very, very cautious in how we return barrels to the market. And that caused a really significant rally in prices that day. And it is really, I think, given added strength to this oil market recovery. And so it really looks like the Saudis are intent on ensuring that the oil market recovery continues. And one thing I think is really interesting is for the last you know, four years, the Trump administration, when I was covering OPEC, Anytime WTI prices were flirting with the mid-60s, President Trump would get on the phone to Riyadh and basically ask for more barrels to sort of tap the upside because he was very concerned about the impact that would have on U.S. consumers. Or his Twitter fingers would get restless and he'd start tweeting about OPEC, essentially saying, give me those barrels. I think the interesting question, you know, with the Biden administration is they're really focused on, you know, accelerating the energy transition are they going to look to manage oil prices? Are they going to make that call to Riyadh? Are they going to try to manage OPEC? And if they're not, does that potentially mean that OPEC has more room to run in terms of having higher prices without interference from Washington? Well, that leads into a question I was really curious about. I wanted to ask you about, which is um, the you mentioned Saudi Arabia in particular. The role of Saudi Arabia uh, within OPEC, um, obviously the relationship with the United States is rather fraught and more complicated at this point with concerns about 
you know, MBS's role in the Khashoggi killing and um, the uh, the fact that the U.S. sanctioned various folks in Saudi Arabia, but not him in particular. Where do you see that relationship and what and, and, and how is it going to evolve and how is that going to affect oil? I think it's a great question because President Trump had an exceptionally close relationship with the Saudi government. As you remember, his first foreign visit was to Saudi Arabia. He really thought about the Saudis as an indispensable partner. Right. You know, saw them as a very large market for you know a whole host of U.S. goods, including you know U.S. arms. Um, he was very focused on the relationship. Jared Kushner had a very close relationship with the Saudi Crown Prince. But President Trump always made an ask of Saudi, the sort of quid pro quo for strong support for the Saudi government was when he wanted the Saudis to put more barrels on the market, mm -hmm. they were expected to put more barrels on the market. And I remember this so clearly in 2018 when President Trump decided to exit the Iranian nuclear agreement. And essentially everyone was very concerned that if we exited the agreement and reimposed sanctions on Iran, would the market become really tight? You know, if you essentially took Iran out of the oil market, were prices going to rise you know, to potentially you know, triple digit levels? Mm. And President Trump really called on the Saudis to put additional barrels on the market. And I remember being at that OPEC meeting, it was June of 2018, and a number of OPEC producers weren't really sure that they wanted to cap the upside. They were kind of enjoying higher prices. <laughs> and I remember when the Saudi oil minister came out and essentially said, we're gonna do a million extra barrels. There's no ambiguity about this. We're gonna make it happen. And that's very much what President Trump wanted. And so we would see it, you know, cap the upside. And then when the price war began between Saudi Arabia and Russia and US oil companies were concerned about potentially going out of business and they called up President Trump and said, you know, we're pretty big supporters of your White House. President Trump also called the Saudis and said, like, you need to get back together with the Russians and we need to actually put a floor in for prices. So he managed both the upside and the downside. I joke that he was essentially the de facto president of OPEC by the end of his administration. <laughs> I just think that you know, President Biden, A, is gonna have a different relationship with Saudi Arabia. He's talking about recalibrating the relationship with the kingdom, more of an emphasis on human rights on a go forward basis, but they're not talking about a full rupture with Saudi Arabia. They right. continue to say it's in the US interest to protect Saudi Arabia's core security interests, you know, particularly coming from Yemen. They feel like they need to work with the Saudis in terms of how you deal with Iran in the region. And so they're not looking to essentially fully you know, rupture the relationship. But when right. it comes to oil, I do think it's gonna be interesting, you know, what is gonna be President Biden's price target? As I said with President Trump, I think he was very concerned when prices rose to a level that it would hurt his political base. And right. you know, rising gas prices was seen as a political problem for President Trump, potentially negating the effects of the tax cut for some of his key you know, bases of support. And I think mm -hmm. for President Biden, it's not that he's not gonna make the call to the King of Saudi Arabia if oil prices rise too high, but the question about what is that price, I think could be very different. I think he'll make the call if it's seen as a clear threat to the global economic recovery. But that might mean the call comes at $100, not at $65, $70. And so right. I think that's actually really important when we wanna think about sort of what the next six months could look like for oil. I actually really do think Washington and the Trump administration played a very important role in establishing kind of boundaries for price when it came to these OPEC players.
Right. And President Biden's political base, presumably, is much less invested, invested in very low oil prices. It's a different kind of, um, I, I would imagine. And again, I think it's not that he won't make the call. I mean, certainly the Obama administration made the call to the Saudis, particularly during the Arab Spring, when you lost key producers like Libya out of the market. But they were making the call when oil was above $100. And so, again, I think that the, the price targets that they're going to sort of use the diplomatic muscle for are just going to be very, very different. And so I actually do think when we look at the back half of the year, we're potentially being set up for pretty solid oil prices because of the government stimulus program, because of the vaccine rollout. And because you have, you know, I think Saudi Arabia very much back in control of the oil market on the supply side. U.S. production is remaining relatively restrained. And I think that is giving Saudi Arabia a lot more ability to move the market the way they think that's appropriate. Really, really interesting kind of question I have. Uh, you know, you talk about Trump's involvement in making the calls into Saudi Arabia. How, how did his predecessors handle that? Was, was Trump more involved than most? I think President Trump was a lot more activist in terms of a, a narrow range that he would make the call in. And President Trump was interesting because he had a, you know, a history of being very, very critical of OPEC. I think he very much was, you know, impacted by the experiences he saw during, you know, the, the long gas lines in the 70s. Like yeah. that was very much his view of OPEC <laughs> was, you know, countries that were sort of holding the U.S. hostage economically. And so he didn't come in with a good sort of view of OPEC. He had talked about supporting legislation that would declare OPEC a cartel and subject it to Sherman antitrust legislation. But once he got into office, you know, and once you had the price war between Saudi Arabia and Russia, potentially threatening you know, US producers, all of a sudden, I think he decided he had to basically start running OPEC. And again, I thought what was very interesting was by the end of his administration, he was on the campaign trail, he was actually really talking about this OPEC plus cut and the role his administration had played in essentially getting the Saudis and the Russians back together and getting this big production cut down. Because for President Trump, you know, a clear sort of part of his foreign policy was American energy dominance. I mean, his officials very early on signaled that what they wanted from US producers was to get every barrel out of the ground and on the water, because that would enable the US to sanction foreign policy adversaries like Iran, like Venezuela, and shield U.S. consumers from the impact of that policy. And so when you have the price war between Saudi Arabia and Russia, and when you have this epic collapse in demand because of COVID, not only did it put the sort of balance sheets of U.S. producers at risk, it put at risk the whole idea of American energy dominance. And on the other side of that, I think part of the reason why the Russians were really reluctant to cut any more barrels in March was they were tired of being sanctioned by the United States. They were tired mm. of what American energy abundance enabled. You have the, the CEO of Russia's biggest energy company, Igor Sachin, he's you know, basically straight out of a Bond film. He's like so fascinating. He has this background <laughs> in intelligence services. You know, he's like cut his teeth in like, you know, Angola. He's a great linguist. He would wear, you know, Gingo Chavez shirts all the time. He managed the Russian relationship with Chavez. And you know, Igor Sachin's position was like, I'm tired of the situation where we cut, the US grows, and we get sanctioned. And so I think that this whole sort of 
Trump foreign policy, like the American energy renaissance played such a big deal. It's such a big part of that. And again, I think for Biden, the difference really is he's looking to speed the transition to renewables. His whole yeah. goal is like, how do you get to net zero? I think he doesn't want to put, you know, U.S. oil and gas producers out of business, but that, that's not his base. Um, you know, right. He's not really focused on the foreign policy dividend of U.S. oil and gas production. He's very focused on the type of foreign policy relationships that are required to meet these global you know, climate accord goals. Sure. And, and I mean, we talked about Saudi Arabia. Um, speaking of Russia um, and, and OPEC and other things, it's obviously been a reset in the relationship with Saudi Arabia, even more so on Russia. So what do you think that does to our relation, our uh, sort of influence on oil prices, um, dealings with OPEC? Um, how does our changing relationship with Russia affect the overall picture? I mean, certainly we expect the Biden administration to take a tougher line on the Russian situation. I mean, obviously, it's not just the issue about potential election interference. It's also this, you know, colossal solar winds hack, which looks like it was probably one of the biggest cyber breaches in U.S. history. Mm. Um, so you have, you know, a very sort of tense relationship with, you know, the Russian government from the outset with the Biden administration. But I actually think that, you know, Biden will have significant bipartisan support for a tougher line on Russia. I mean, think about who has led the charge to sanction this key gas project, Nord Stream 2. I mean, that is, that's Ted Cruz from Texas is leading that effort to sanction that project. I remember being on a call, Ted Cruz, it was a public call, so I'm not giving anything away. It was a think tank call. But he was saying at the end of December, like this was an area where he thought there was broad bipartisan support and where he expected to be able to work with the Biden administration. And he basically said, like, I'm going to make it my goal to block the completion of this project. Like, I am never going to allow Nord Stream 2 to be you know, completed. And so I do think that there is broad bipartisan support for taking a tougher line on Russia. And I think what's going to be very interesting is I think the Russians are very focused on U.S. production. Whereas the Saudis will say, look, we're not targeting you know, U.S. shale production. We can't put shale out of business. We have to live with shale. You know, the Russians, I think, are very focused on let's make sure that you know, U.S. production stays in the ground. I think they're going to be very closely monitoring whether these companies remain disciplined. And you're already hearing Russian officials say, like, look, in this price environment, if we don't put more barrels on the market, our competitors will put barrels on the market. And I think that really is the competitor they're talking about is the United States. But what I think would really sort of concern Russian officials like Igor Sechin would be if they come to believe that the Biden administration is basically deciding it's okay to do more sanctions because of U.S. production. If they believe mm -hmm. that, you know, U.S. production is enabling an even tougher sanctions line from the Biden administration, I think their willingness to want to give any financial lifeline to shale will go away very, very fast. Uh, interesting. Well, it certainly is, uh, you know, Russia at this point, the only person left who's pro-Russia is kind of maybe Paul Manafort. I don't know. I don't know who's left. But, but, but um, you say that. That's a really interesting question there because the Russian foreign minister just visited, you know, Saudi Arabia this week, the UAE this week, Qatar this week. And what's interesting is if you think about the Cold War, I mean, Saudi Arabia was a key partner of the United States, you know, during the Afghan war. And you know, they were a pretty big, you know, Cold War adversary of the Russians. And so I actually think that one of the soft power 
gains or wins the Russians have taken is through this OPEC plus arrangement. I think they've mm -hmm. been able to forge new ties into countries that were traditional U.S. allies who felt that there was a, a leadership vacuum and the U.S. was essentially retreating from the region. And so I do think that the Russians have been able to use OPEC to sort of spread influence globally. John, do you want to move to move to China? Should we move to China? <laughs> no, I'm just I'm actually amazed. Like a lot of times we're talking about like micro topics and it's these macro almost global pissing matches yeah. and the impact yeah. that they can have is yeah. just it just makes really you remarkable. feel makes you feel very small doesn't it ronan no you make you <laughs> no nothing i, I don't nothing, even know what I nothing know does what that i was gonna make fun of you for saying investing before and i didn't so be nice John. <laughs> <laughs> so you, right. you, you want me to ask a question on uh china yeah so you, you know We've heard like Biden team is seeking to cooperate with China on climate change mitigation, right? And how would a change like that, um, um, like how would this change the way they interact with China in other respects then? I think that's a great question because, you know, if there's bipartisan support for taking a tough line on China and Capitol Hill, I mean, on, on Russia and Capitol Hill, I think there's also bipartisan support for taking a tough line on China. And so I think that where you see Democrats and Republicans really aligned is on the idea that great power competition with China is going to be the you know, number one strategic challenge of the United States over the sort of coming decade. And so you have a Biden administration that very much needs to work with China. They believe they need to work with China to achieve these ambitious climate change goals. But on the other hand, they're also saying, we're going to take a tougher line on human rights. We're gonna take a tougher line, for example, on what's happening in Hong Kong, what's happening with the Uyghurs in China. We are going to try to push the issue of freedom of navigation in the South China Seas, deal with its intellectual property issues. And so in terms of the list of things they're looking to press China on, it's not necessarily that different from what Trump was looking to do. It's just a difference of tactics. So what the Biden administration would say is, we're gonna work with our allies to deal with China and to come up with a comprehensive approach to work with our European partners, our allies in the region, but they're still looking to take a tough line on these you know, core strategic issues. And so I think it's gonna be a really interesting you know, situation to watch how it evolves because climate change and combating climate change is one of the four central pillars of the sort of Biden overall agenda and how China fits into that is gonna be very interesting to see. You, you can't deal with that issue without engaging China in a meaningful way, right? So you can't view them entirely as an adversary and at the same time enlist their support in dealing with climate change, change issues in a significant way. Right, but absolutely. But the, the challenge is going to be, so for example, when you look at you know, what's transpiring over the issue of Hong Kong and the way China is going about, some people would say it's dismantling um, the, you know, democratic system in, in Hong Kong and a limited democratic system in Hong Kong. I mean, the Biden administration keeps sort of signaling that they're going to impose more sanctions and draw more lines on this, lines in the sand on this issue. But the question is, again, if you really need China for this core, you know, foundational principle or guiding principle of your administration, how much can you really push them on issues like Hong Kong? Um, it's going to be very interesting to see how this whole situation evolves over Taiwan as well, because those are issues like Taiwan has seen this initially can potentially be a really important red line for China. So I think how the administration navigates these kind of trade-offs will be really important.
So I have a, I have some breaking news that before the podcast, John Ramsey broke that he's looking to potentially buy an electric vehicle. <laughs> and, and he asked Halima if that's okay and if she would be angry with him. <laughs> uh, yes, I didn't ask her which electric vehicle or whatever, but I do. But this is on my mind these days because I am actually looking to get an electric car and having to think about what kind of connection do I need in my garage and what are the specifications and all that crazy stuff that we never had to think about before. So um, uh, with all, you know, with many car manufacturers talking about a glide path to all electric vehicles within some number of years, that raises the question, what does that do for oil? What does that do to oil as a geopolitical tool um, or weapon? What does it uh, do for US policy with respect to oil? Obviously looking forward five to 10 years. What, what do you think about that? I think this is a great question because I think there's sort of two aspects of this question that I've sort of started to really think about. I think there's going to be a very interesting sort of geopolitics of renewables discussion because you know many of the critical components that you would need for that that EV. You know, if you think about sort of cobalt, where, where is cobalt produced? Cobalt is produced in countries like the Democratic Republic of Congo, and so I think there are going to be all these questions around you know, security of supply of critical minerals. I think there's gonna be issues around the extraction of those minerals. I mean, there's been so much on the oil sector in terms of transparency, in terms of revenue payments to governments for oil, you know, the environmental issues around that, labor issues around, you know, oil and gas extraction. I think many of those same issues could be in place you know, for renewables as well. So I think there's gonna be these very important questions about sort of what are labor practices like in the Democratic Republic of Congo? Mm. Again, like what type of revenue transparency mechanism is it gonna be put in place to ensure that, you know, that revenue doesn't go into the hands of you know, certain you know, highly connected officials in the government? There are all these issues around security of supply, I think that we're gonna see as renewables gain greater market share. And then it's gonna be an interesting question about sort of the, the whole value chain of renewables because people would say that's really dominated by China at this point. And mm. again, when I think about sort of the, some of the geopolitics questions, like if you think about a country like the DRC, they have a very, very close relationship with China. And so the question is, is China going to be able to use their sort of strategic and diplomatic heft to really be the dominant player when it comes to electric vehicles. And I actually think that that is a way that the Biden team is looking to sort of drive support for renewables on Capitol Hill to essentially right. say like this revolution is coming. If and if one you want way or it, maybe, another, we can't one be left behind. Coming. So yeah. we have to bring the value chain you know, to the United States. So I think that's gonna be very interesting to watch it play, how the issue of China's lead in this sector, how that sort of is used to kind of drive bipartisan support on Capitol Hill. The other side of that, which I think is interesting, is what happens to traditional oil and gas producers. And I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be a very divergent path. So you have certain oil producers that need, you know, well into the triple digits to make their budgets work now in terms of oil prices. And they are not the lowest cost producers. And so these are the countries that essentially could really be sort of pushed out of the market in an energy transition situation. So I worry very much about like, how does Nigeria make that transition? When they have 200 million people, you have you know, two thirds of the population living on less than you know, $2 a day, oil still accounts for the bulk of government revenue. Like I think that that country could really struggle 
if it's an accelerated energy transition and they have not done enough on diversification. On the other side of that is you have these, you know, Gulf oil producers, you know, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Kuwait, and they are the lowest cost producers globally. And they are the lowest emitters in terms of their barrels of oil. So what they say is they have the cheapest barrel and the greenest barrel. And while demand for oil may plateau around 2030, it's not gonna go to zero. So even in a shrinking pie scenario, there will be plenty of producers that are priced out in the market or you know, simply companies decide it's no longer their business model to be a you know, oil producer. And they are the ones, it's gonna be the Gulf national oil companies that will continue to invest in the upstream sector and they will be the sort of last man standing. And they also say, you know what? We're also prepared to be the dominant player in these transition fuels like hydrogen, which will be very important for mm. difficult to decarbonize sectors like steel. And then they say, we have our sovereign wealth funds where we essentially take the money from oil exports and we give it to our sovereign wealth funds and they pursue a strategy of diversification and they invest in renewables companies and battery technology and ride sharing companies. So the Gulf states actually are saying, you know, we think we're pretty well set up for an energy transition. But again, there are countries like Nigeria and Algeria, Venezuela, ones that are struggling now in the current price environment, I think they could have a really difficult transition. And again, when you think about in Nigeria, 200 million people, huge problems with sectarian violence, a big sort of counterterrorism issue there. Mm. I mean, that could be a big problem for the neighborhood mm. if Nigeria does not transition well. Alima, I have, a, I have a question. Actually, it's uh, something you said uh, earlier in this answer. But yeah, you're right. There's absolutely like that negative connotation of oil and environmental destruction and a halo effect around, you know, electro electric vehicles. But as you point out, you know, the extraction of cobalt and labor laws and environment. Um, when are those questions being asked or are they started to be asked? And is John Ramsey a yeah. bad man for getting electric car? No, I am not a bad man. I'm a good man for doing it, Ronan. You're always trying you are, to belittle me, please. I believe you are a very good man. I do Thank think you. there's already starting to be attention on this. I mean, I think there's becoming a lot of attention at you know, working levels in the US government, you know, European governments on the issue of critical minerals and how do you ensure best practices and extraction of critical minerals. But I do think it's a lagging part of the debate about the transition. And again, I think it's, I started my career covering a country like the DRC. Um, it had, was coming out of, you know, one of the world's worst wars, like 5 million people had died in that war in the DRC. And it was a war that was fueled by, you know, conflict minerals. And, you know, neighboring countries put their armies into the DRC because they wanted a piece of the action in terms of blood diamonds. And so, again, when we think about cobalt, I do think it's really important to try to set in place, you know, best practices to ensure that the extraction of these minerals that will fuel the energy transition are not actually fueling conflict in these countries. Right. Nice. I think that was a really great question, though, I had about John. <laughs> that, was, that was wonderful, Ronan. Yes. Um, we haven't talked much other than um, kind of in passing about the, the Biden administration, the first 100 days and all of that. Uh, we're recording this on the 11th, which is the day that the stimulus bill was actually signed. Um, so 
what's your um, what's your sense about what the um, how things have gone so far? What the next uh, you know few number of months look like, uh, and what are um, other aspects of Biden administration policy on on um, issues that you touch? Where do you see it going? Yeah, I think they, you know, were very quick and like that, you know, the first week to signal that they were intent on backing, you know, words of action when it came to their ambitious climate goals, you know, whether it was going back into the Paris Climate Accords, whether it was essentially coming out and deep sixing, you know, Keystone XL, whether it was, you know, essentially saying we're going to put a moratorium on you know, permitting for new drilling projects on federal lands, like really signaling that climate change was going to combating climate change is gonna be like a central focus of their administration. Things to watch for now is, you know, the stimulus package did not contain a lot of the green energy agenda. Mm-hmm. We're gonna look for that potentially in infrastructure bills that are coming up next. And I think there's some key areas of potential bipartisan cooperation on this, you know, green energy agenda. So for example, tax breaks for wind and solar. We hear when we talk to congressional Democrats and congressional Republicans, there seems a broad bipartisan support for, you know, tax credits, um, particularly because of, you know, where some of these wind farms are located. They're located in these red states as well. So I think that is an area we can see potential bipartisan support. Carbon capture, utilization and storage, that is another area where it looks like there's broad bipartisan support. Interestingly enough, you know, support for advanced civilian nuclear technology also seems to have broad bipartisan support. I think it's going to become more challenging though for the Biden administration to make good on promises, for example, to phase out subsidies for fossil fuel producers because changes to the tax code, I think it's going to be challenging because I think there are a number of Democrats from energy states that are not going to be enthusiastic about that. Like, I'm not sure you can get Connor Lamb, you know, from Pennsylvania to support that. I don't think Joe Manchin is going to support that from West Virginia. So I do think that that is going to be difficult. I think they are going to look, though, to use the permitting process and the government procurement process to drive this overall agenda of getting to net zero by 2050. So again, I think there's going to be infrastructure bills where you want to look for some of these like early action items, but I think there's still things that they're just not going to be able to drive bipartisan support for, you know, initially. They're, they don't have the majority they need to get some of this done. It does strike me, although that that certainly is true. It, it, it Just from my vantage point, it strikes me that they've been uh, seemingly very disciplined about signaling where they're going, what they're for, yeah. um, unapologetically, um, and and being very clear about that. Oh, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I do think, for example, on climate change, I mean, they've been very clear that they have four sort of overarching strategic priorities, you know, dealing with the COVID pandemic, racial justice, economic recovery, and combating climate change. And you can just see when you look at like, you know, appointments in the administration, you know, so many people have such strong, you know, climate action backgrounds that are, you know, filling the top post in the administration. I think it's going to be something that not just in terms of what they do on domestic energy policy, it's going to be a very important, we already touched on it in terms of like how you deal with China, 
but you're already starting to see like, you know, the director of national intelligence has been tasked with coming up with an assessment on the national security risks posed by climate change. It's going to essentially become an item that is cross-cutting across all of the US government, foreign policy, intelligence, domestic policy. Nice. So Halima, you have tackled every question we rolled your way like a pro. <laughs> but now we have the question of questions that will forever immortalize you on the Boxes and Lions podcast. <laughs> they, will, they will haunt me for the rest <laughs> yeah, of my life. Yeah, yes, yeah. This is where the pressure starts. Uh, what's your favorite Wall Street movie and why? Okay, I don't think, I don't count this as a Wall Street movie, but I count it as an, an energy movie. And I just had to rewatch it. Syriana. Um, is, you know, one of my mm. absolute favorites. And you think about the whole intersection of, you know, you have the, the, you know, the CIA, you know, case officer, you have the, you know, dueling brothers in a hydrocarbon rich, you know, unnamed Gulf country, you have <laughs> the energy analyst at a Swiss-based trading house, who's also on TV all the time talking about the oil markets. And so to me, like, if I had to say, like, you know, what kind of movie would I be in? I'd probably be in Syriana. That's oh, when did that come out? Because you know, I don't think I've ever seen it, and I'm like out of time. So yeah. oh I haven't even God. I haven't even heard of it. And I was gonna say yeah. you hit the ball out of the park with that answer, by the yeah. way. Now the yeah. second question is, did you make this movie up? Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 I had no. heard of it. I've just never seen it. Did, oh do you know God. when it came out? Early 2000s. Um, it's actually okay. based on a book by one of the most famous you know, CIA Middle East operatives, Bob oh, Barrett. So, so, so you were probably at the CIA when it came out. That's probably when you first saw it. That... No, actually, I was, um, I think I was a fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations okay. when that right. movie came out. And it was very topical it came out during you know the early days of the iraq war and then questions about were we there for oil so it's a very um it's a very interesting movie and i was actually participating in this like film club with george clooney recently i'm not name dropping <laughs> uh, and it was interesting to look at that movie now because actually you know you have the sort of heroic you know prince there who basically wants to do good by his country and he's like well, you know what we should be doing deals with china instead of western oil companies and so i think the interesting question is you know if you had to fast forward would his country necessarily be better off if they were doing deals with china as opposed to just western oil companies and how would this country even be prepared for an energy transition is what i was asking in that you know film club but i think wow. it's really worth watching that's my next Netflix movie for yeah, whatever, I think I'm or gonna Amazon watch it or wherever. It does, it does yeah. sound good. You, you, you might, I think you win the most unique answer <laughs> to that question we've ever gotten. Yeah. I thought I'd yeah. stump her. Um, yeah. And the other thing is no one leaves our podcast without a gift. And yeah. We have a traditional yeah. gift we give everybody, which a again, pair, I might finally uh, make your face pair. look uh, confused here. Yeah, but, a pair. <laughs> tell John. Tell Halima what she gets. You get a pair of IX socks. Yeah. I mean, you deserve so much more than that, but they're very colorful and they're You're in a movie club with George Clooney and we're providing you with socks. But I have to tell you, a lot of vendors give out socks and they're unwearable. Are they grip socks? Are they like, are they No, but there's nothing particularly special about them, except they've got. We're going to edit that part out, listeners. What they are actually socks? nice socks. You will you will like them. We will make sure you, you get a pair. Every every guest on 
boxes and lines. I've had a, a, a pair. But yeah, we'd love if you took a picture of your socks and put it on Twitter in, in my pe- socks. People people do all the time, actually. Like <laughs> okay. send me pictures of them in their socks. Uh, it cracks me up. <laughs> this was really really great, and I think our our listeners are going to find it really really interesting. And we 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 can't thank you enough for joining us. John, thank you, you for do... having me. <laughs> oh, thank you. You have been so terrific. We just, we'd loved having you. We hope you can come back again. I would love to come back. You got to throw in another pair of socks though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, you might, you might even get gloves. <laughs> it's like, all right. Well, thank you very much, John. Do your bad Irish accent. God bless you all. Thank you for <laughs> listening to Boxes and Lines. <laughs> and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational and educational purposes only. And IEX Group, Inc. and its affiliates do not make any representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Nothing in this podcast constitutes a solicitation or offer to buy or sell any securities or provide any investment advice or service. Some portions of the preceding conversations may have been edited for length or clarity. Copyright IEX Group, Inc. All rights reserved.